Tonight, we're going to finish our series on Romans, and I hope we take away a rock-solid sense of our identity in Christ. And we're not going to be able to finish all of Romans, so finish the last two chapters, 15 and 16, on your own. But we'll close with 14 tonight, and I believe that at least gives us an idea of all the major themes in this letter. We learned in chapters 1 through 11 that we're justified by grace through Christ alone and not by works. It's completely unearned. We sinners are made perfect and completely righteous because of his sacrifice for us. These chapters highlight Christ in us, with chapters 1 through 5 helping us understand what the gospel is, and then chapters 6 through 8 helping us to experience the gospel. Chapters 12 through the end of Paul's letter, the Church of Rome, we said continues focusing on Christ through us. We've learned in this section how the gospel, Christ through us, transforms our relationships Specifically, our relationship to ourselves as we grow in Christ, and then to other Christ followers, to authorities, government authorities specifically, and then even to our enemies. Now in chapter 14, we'll see how the gospel transforms our relationships with other believers who have different convictions than us. Paul closes the loop and gets ultra practical here. He says, in effect, okay, You've, you've heard what God has said through me leading up until now, all the way through chapters 1 through 13, and here's how to practically apply it. An insanely practical, specific problem that this church was having. We'll see that the specific problem the church at Rome was having is that they were having a hard time loving believers who had different convictions on open-handed issues. Okay, now let, let me explain what I mean by, you know, what are open-handed issues? Open-handed issues are things that are not strictly forbidden or commanded in Scripture. That there are principles, but there's nothing specifically commanded. It would be things like drinking, whether or not you should work on Sunday, specific uh, convictions related to dating, politics, uh, how to raise your kids, how to school your kids. You know, there are a million and one different examples Close-handed issues, on the, other thing, on the other hand, are issues that are not up for grabs. The divinity of Christ, the Trinity, that there's only one way to God and it's through Jesus Christ. There are not many ways to God. That there is one uh, outlet that God gives us for uh, sexuality and it's through marriage. One man, one woman for one life. Those are things that we don't have personal convictions on because they are strictly laid out in Scripture. It's very clear. But there are other issues that are open-handed. So the issue in Rome was uh, their division was evidently hurting the unity in the church. Because remember, chapter 12 through the remainder of the letter is Christ through us and more specifically how the gospel alone unifies the church. And we'll learn tonight through chapter 14 that biblical unity is not what you thought. It is not simply being friends with people who are Christians who are just like you. It's not. In fact, there's nothing supernatural about that at all. Even in the world, people get along with people who are just like them, don't they? But supernatural unity in the body of Christ is irresistible to the world. It's our greatest apologetic. Uh, I lost my place, guys. I'm just going to be completely honest. Okay, here we go. So we're going to see in a moment that we can live in the power and blessing 
of supernatural unity within the body of Christ, we can get along and thrive even with believers with different convictions on open-handed issues when we grasp both the danger of condemning one another, the danger of that, and how we can thrive with one another. So let's pray before we jump in here. Lord, we thank you so much for safe families. Lord, as I was preparing and praying for this talk, I thought of what a great example safe family is of this. Lord, reaching out and loving people who sometimes come from different backgrounds than some of us. Lord, our church backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds sometimes. Lord, inviting in ones who uh, maybe are going through some trying circumstances that are different than ours. Lord, we pray a blessing on that ministry. Lord, we pray a blessing on the many who are involved in young life and wildlife and crew in this church and the many of those who are, are reaching out to ones who are different. Lord, we pray for IFI, our, our international friends at Ohio State campus who many are, are building relationships with and sharing the gospel with ones who come from across the world. Lord, we thank you so much for those at this church that are called to cross-cultural missions and are wondering how to walk that out. We pray a blessing on them, Lord, as they seek to reach across the aisle as well. Lord, and please help us in our culture where disunity is the flavor of the day. Every time we turn on the news, we see that hatred is celebrated. Please heal us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we jump in, we're not going to be able to read all of Romans tonight. We just don't have time. So I want you to read it all on your own, the whole chapter, Romans 14. So grab your Bible or your phone. You can Google it, or if you have a Bible app or whatever, there are Bibles near you as well. Romans chapter 14, and go ahead and read that on your own, uh, prayerfully asking the Lord to help you to understand it and apply it.
okay. In Romans chapter 14, verse 1, uh, the first four, I'll read the first four verses here. It says, Except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So the big idea Paul's getting at here is simply uh, for the Roman church and all believers by application that they should not pass judgment on other believers for open-handed issues. So the weaker believer here are those Jewish Christians who thought that they still had to obey the dietary laws in order to be right with God. That was the open-handed issue in play here. And what makes this issue so divisive for this young church is that according to the Jewish law contained in the Old Testament, there were many dietary restrictions that were used to help God's people identify as separate. So in other words, God is holy, and he says to his people, you're holy. And a way to symbolize that was through their diet. It served as an everyday object lesson for them to remember that they were holy. But now that we're made holy through Christ, through his once-for-all-time sacrifice, these dietary laws were no longer necessary for Jews or Gentiles. And it's clarified later in verses 20 and 21 where Paul says, all food is clean. So he makes it very clear that the, the right application is all food is clean. Objectively, these Jewish believers were wrong to judge Gentile believers because all food is clean. However, the issue was complicated because there's also the, the issue of conscience. We read in this chapter that we're not to encourage our brother and sister to compromise their personal convictions. That is, areas of uh, conscience, where they feel like they need to do something that may or may not be or that's not commanded directly in Scripture, and that to do so causes them to violate their conscience in sin. We see a specific example in verse 3. These Roman, Jewish, and Gentile believers were told that they who practice their Christian freedom by eating everything shouldn't judge those who only eat vegetables as a matter of conscience. And on the other side, those who eat only vegetables should not judge those who feel freedom to eat as they wish. Both are accepted by God. Now, to make sure we're actually tracking here, I want to ask you a question. Read verse 2 and tell me which group of people is considered weak here. Is it the, the uh, Jews who were only eating vegetables, or was it those who were, uh, felt freedom to eat whatever they wanted? Which group is considered weak, defined as weak, in verse 2? Yes, yeah, the Jewish group. Good job, Josie. Excellent. Um, you're right. That was a wrong or right answer. If you had said anything else, it would have been wrong, and you said the right answer, so... It wasn't one of those open-handed, everybody-gets-to-feel-good kind of questions. Uh, there was just one, one answer. Uh, now, they're considered weak, but they still should not be judged because of their conviction. So why were they considered weak? They're considered weak because they lose the heart of the gospel, and that is we're accepted by God because of what Jesus has done, not because of our do's and don'ts. It's important to note that weak here does not mean Paul's saying that these Jewish believers were not in Christ. That is, that they weren't Christians. They're very different from the Judaizers 
that Paul addresses in his letter to the Galatians. The Judaizers were ones who were actually purposefully trying to undermine the teaching of the gospel in the church and who openly uh, said and thought that you were saved by your adherence to the law. They were, uh, were not Christ followers. These Jewish Christians here are Christ followers who were confused. They thought that they had to keep the dietary laws and keep certain convictions on drinking alcohol and Jewish holy days. We know that, in fact, those who are weak are oftentimes the ones who are trying to please Jesus the most, aren't they? They're not weak in effort. They're probably trying harder than anybody. They're weak in that they are holding on to a, a, a remnant of a legalistic teaching that says we're saved by what we do. In short, they haven't worked out the implications of the gospel in them because to be saved by grace means we no longer need to feel like we can or must keep God's favor by obeying rules and regulations. That a holy life is a product of grace and not earned in return for obedience. Now here in Romans 14, it's the Jewish Christians who are being highlighted for their weak faith, right? Because they're still following the Uh, dietary laws, the clean, unclean laws contained in the Old Testament. Uh, So they're the ones who are being highlighted. But Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 8, he speaks to the Gentiles because they didn't feel freedom to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols because their history had been idol worship before Christ rescued them. And uh, uh, the Jews, however, in Corinth thought that eating meat sacrificed to idols was fine because they didn't have that history of idol worship like those Gentile believers in Corinth. So the contrast here between Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, this Jewish and Gentile issue, shows us that sometimes ethnic or social issues can cause one group to be weak while the other is strong, and then on the next issue, one group's strong while the other's weak. Does that make sense? We all have those issues. We all have issues where we are weak in faith because for whatever reason, we still have remnants of legalism that are kind of holding on. We all do. So this, this applies to all of us. We can't put ourselves just in the camp of weak or strong. We all struggle on both sides here. Um, so then in 14.3... Paul gives the solution to this issue that was evidently ripping the church apart. Because remember, this section is about the fact that the gospel alone unifies the church. They were in desperate need of unity, and so are we. The church is always just one word, one argument, one issue away from being destroyed. Did you know that? And we see churches dropping like flies these days, so... We need to put on our hard hats and work hard to understand this passage because it matters. In Romans 14.3, it says, The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. So the strong here, those who eat everything, shouldn't look down on those who don't feel the freedom in Christ to eat everything. Those are the weak. And the strong shouldn't feel like they're wiser or more sophisticated than the weak and that the weak are narrow-minded and stupid. So in short, in very simple terms, it would be wrong for the strong to say, hey, you feel like you can only eat vegetables. That's stupid. You're narrow-minded. You're foolish. 
you, you, you don't know the gospel well enough, and I'm just going to do whatever I want around you. I'm going to eat whatever I want. That is the wrong idea. That's the wrong idea. Paul says in this chapter that both the strong and the weak shouldn't follow their natural inclination to condemn the other and rip them apart. Naturally, we want to draw swords and pick sides while isolating in little groups of people in the church that think just like we do. Don't we? That's why we don't have closed groups that awaken, because we know we'll naturally do that. We will get people that think just like us on open-handed issues. And we'll isolate. That's the easy way, but it's not God's plan. Do you guys hear that? Your home group should not be comfortable. It should not be filled with people who think just like you. We should be uncomfortable sometimes in home group. With different backgrounds, with people who have different convictions on Again, said open-handed issues. And we know what the divisive issues are in the church today, don't we? The open-handed issues we can argue about. Could be political uh, convictions. The education of our children, home, public, or private school, Christian school. Views on disciplining our kids. Dating, worship styles, approaches to ministry. For example, should you do initiative evangelism where you talk to strangers, or is it all about relational evangelism with your friends? And there's a million issues within that. Uh, And we share drinking as an issue with the church at Rome, don't we? Some believe it's okay to drink. Some believe it's not. But we're not to judge and we're not to isolate ourselves from believers who tick us off because they don't have the same convictions we do. We're not. I believe that Paul's saying here that that is a sin. It's a sin against the unity of the body of Christ that's modeled in the Trinity. A big problem in the church today is churches can tend to rally around their convictions on open-handed issues instead of rallying around the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've seen it, haven't you? I know some churches that are homeschool only. Some churches refuse to change their worship style when uh, when the demographic that God's called them to reach really would be better reached with a different style than what they're um, uh, using. Some churches are drinking churches, while some are non-drinking. Some churches... Uh, Treat open-handed doctrinal issues as close-handed issues. You you have to be you have to have a reformed theology at some churches, and in other churches you have to have an Arminian theology. Now that's not stated in the membership class, but it's definitely the shadow vision. You're not taking uh, one step towards leadership without those specific beliefs. In some churches, you would have a hard time becoming a leader if your political stance was more left-leaning, or in other churches, right-leaning. I believe that it's ridiculous, and I believe it's sin, and I think the critics that show us that it's sin are the world. When they say you're disunified, there are a million and one different denominations, they are right, and we should repent of that. Whereas the Jewish believers, they still saw their set-apartness from the world, so to speak, demonstrated through their adherence to the dietary laws. But Paul here is relaying the message to them that our holiness is set apart by radical unity. Because the world can love people who are just like them. The world does that all the time. We see it in our neighborhoods. We see it in our workplace. We see it at the gym. People are talking to others who are just like them. And if we do that in the church, we have no witness. But if they see us getting along And not only getting along, but thriving with one another and loving one another despite having different convictions on, again, open-handed issues, then, man, they're attracted to that like bees to honey, aren't they? 
because that's the love of Christ. And man, the love of Christ is sticky, isn't it, when we get into this stuff? Being around people who are not like you, it's easy to talk about it. It's very hard to do. It's draining, isn't it? But it's not meant to be easy. It's not meant to feel natural. It's meant to feel unnatural. It's meant to feel impossible because our flesh hates it. Have you ever done that? Have you ever pursued someone who's not like you, and at first they get on your last nerve, but you, play for, you pray for Jesus to change your heart, and then all of a sudden they're like your best friend? Any of you have that? Raise your hand. Keep your hand up if it's the person next to you. I'm just kidding. All right. Uh, and Paul will unpack this with greater attention. He'll pay just awesome attention to detail as we go. But let's first look at the dangers of condemning believers. Condemning other believers with different convictions on open-handed issues makes us dangerously forgetful, spiritually speaking. We forget first that we're justified by faith. It says in verse 3 in the last part that God has accepted them. And the them here are those who have the other conviction. In context, eating everything or only vegetables. In other words, Paul's saying... You should welcome one another because God has welcomed and accepted you. Isn't that the whole message of Romans? That God is for you. Jesus is in us. And as a result, he wants to work through us. That's the message. John Stott says it best in his reflections on Romans, his commentary on Romans. He says, how dare we reject a person whom God has accepted? Indeed, the best way to determine what our attitude to other people should be is to determine what God's attitude to them is. This principle is better even than the golden rule to treat others as we treat ourselves. It's safe to treat others as we would like them to treat us, but it's safer still to treat them as God does. Radical unity, crazy unity. So we don't forget to preach the gospel to ourselves and remember who justifies us. And when we do that, we won't condemn other believers. Second, when we condemn other believers for convictions on open-handed issues, we forget that God is the only judge. In verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Now, let me clarify here. Uh, judge here does not mean simple evaluation. You know, judge, it doesn't mean we can't evaluate other believers' convictions. There's a difference between judgment and, evalu and uh, evaluating someone else's beliefs. So we can and should be able to share our convictions with passion even, on open-handed issues with other believers. But it's not okay to make it sound like that conviction is a command. And instead of kind of, hey, are you sure about this? You know, I mean, that's fine to challenge. But then to rebuke them and make it sound like sin, that's not for you and I to do on open-handed issues. That's, that's Jesus' job. I think he's a little better at judging people than me. Because if we end up judging believers on open-handed issues, we could end up being judged by the judge. It's a big deal. So okay to challenge, but not to rebuke. Does that make sense on open-handed issues? On sin, rebuke. Rebuke. That's sin, you need to repent. That's fine. Uh, but again, talking about open-handed issues here. So for example, a believer may decide to drink for good reason, maybe because alcoholism is in their family, maybe because of the expense, maybe because of the statistics they've read about the dangers of alcoholism, drunk driving, and all the rest. But catch what it says in verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? He's the judge. He's the judge. Sometimes we're insecure in our own personal convictions, 
and that's why we jump, on, on, jump over other believers, right? We're insecure, and we want everybody to be like us, so we feel more secure. Well, I've chosen not to drink, so so should you. Or I've chosen to school, school my kids in this way, so so should you. Um, so, the last thing that I think happens, the, the, the last way we can dangerously forget the grace of God when we condemn other believers is we forget to think through our own position. In Romans 14, verse 5, it says, One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Did we catch that? Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. This is not advocating not having convictions. It's just the opposite. We should have convictions on as many issues as possible. It shouldn't just be up in the air. We should have a conviction on drinking. We should have political convictions. We should have convictions on dating and sexuality, on the gray area issues, all of those things. We should have specific convictions. Because what we do is first we read what does the Bible say, and then we're to be careful. Because even if we have freedom in a particular area, like let's say dating or drinking once again, we must ask, does it lead me or others into sin? This takes careful thought and prayer, and I'll add, seeking the advice from other believers, especially believers who think differently than you. I keep picking on drinking, but you could address any issue. I'm just addressing that one because it's easy. But let's say you've chosen to drink, and you have a, a friend who's a believer who's chosen not to drink. If you're trying to figure out your conviction on that, talk to the believer who's chosen not to drink and ask them why and ask them questions. Really seek to understand it's not easy. It requires humility, but it will build up the body of Christ. It will make us warmer. It'll make uh, our church more life-giving. Our relationships with, with one another will be more enjoyable, and it'll be a great apologetic to a critical world, won't it? When everyone in a church has the same convictions, the world thinks that's weird and they should. When everyone at church has the same convictions, it almost always means an open-handed issue has become a close-handed issue. And that leads to disunity, spiritual abuse, and a very limited demographic of people that church is going to be able to reach. Again, you can't play cards. Why? Because, you know, you shouldn't gamble. And so, therefore, we're going to stay as far away from that, so you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't play cards. Or you know what? You shouldn't watch TV because there's so much trash on there. At this church, we don't watch TV. And you have enough, and you've seen those kind of weird churches, right? The teaching is right. You could come to know Jesus there, but it is a dysfunctional family, and it's dangerous. It's easy because everybody falls into line. But that's not the unity that uh, the New Testament's talking about. Um, Paul goes on the same uh, train of thought here in verses, verse 6. He says, Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to him. So the big question on open-handed issues, according to verse 6, is, Am I doing this unto the Lord? So the question we should ask on open-handed issues, again, like dating, drinking, or the use of our money, can I do this while thinking about Jesus? Similarly, can I do this while talking to Jesus in prayer? 
Can I drink like this or talk like this or date like this or spend like this in his name and for his glory? And the most important question that encompasses all that I've mentioned so far is, can I enjoy Jesus while engaged in this? Or while I'm doing this particular act, do I hide from him? Because if that's the case, even on an open-handed issue, it's sin. And we know. You know why I know we know? Because the Holy Spirit tells us. He gives us those insecurities. Man, I, just, I know this is okay, but it just doesn't feel right for me. It's sin. For you, it's a command. Does that make sense? Okay. So we've already looked at the danger of what we can forget when judging other believers, but there's another, there's another danger. Condemning other believers is unloving and spiritually abusive. It is spiritually abusive. So let's skip ahead where Paul addresses this in verse 13. It says, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. So the spirit-driven intent of this last section in Romans, the gospel working through us, specifically through the gospel's ability to bring unity to the church, finds its climax in this verse. It's an important one. Unity in the church looks like building one another up through the loving use of our gifts, like we read about in chapter 12. But unity is torn to shreds if we judge one another and cause a believer to violate their convictions. Verse 14 and verse 23 clarify that. In verse 14, if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it's unclean. And then in verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that's not come from faith is sin. So our conscience matters to God. Here's how it works. Let's say you come from a Christian tradition where you've been taught that drinking is wrong. And then you come into a church where they treat it as an open-handed issue and folks have a choice on the matter. Now, you feel like it's wrong, but other believers motivate you to drink. And we know the Bible says it's wrong to get drunk and you're drinking in moderation. But you feel guilty. You feel ashamed. And you feel that it's wrong, and you find yourself hiding the fact that you drink in moderation from other believers who think it's wrong to drink. So you start hiding, and now you start hiding other things. Because doesn't the enemy love to work in a sneaky way like that? He primes the pump with the drinking, and then all of a sudden, you're looking at porn. Something strictly forbidden by God for our good. If you feel like you're hiding it, if you can't put your head on the pillow at night, Without a second thought, some believers can put their head on the pillow at night without a second thought about moderate drinking. Others, man, I don't know if I should be doing that. Just don't do it. It's a distraction. It's in the way. What does a great athlete do when something's getting in the way of that championship ring? It's got to go. Whether it's French fries, late nights, whatever. And that's for a crown that will perish. If it's in the way in my relationship with Jesus, we got to have the idea it's gone. It's gone. It's just not even worth it. It's nothing compared to Jesus. It's absolutely nothing compared to his glory, his goodness, and the abundant life that he has for us. It's simply unloving for us to motivate another believer to turn away from their convictions. Paul comes right out and says it in verse 15. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Man, what strong language. We're just talking about food here. 
Don't destroy someone for whom Christ died. Using the example of drinking again, again, just because it's easy, if I simply say, your drinking conviction is your problem, I'm going to do whatever I want, it's wrong thinking. Because remember 13.8, we only have one outstanding debt that can never be repaid, don't we? And it's the outstanding debt of love. Do we really want to violate the conviction for one that Christ died for simply so we can have a scrap of food, a TV show, or a drink? Remember, we're not talking about the things that we're commanded to do, like witnessing or reading our Bible, talking about uh, open-handed issues, just as a side note here. But it's crazy that Paul uses this word, destroy, isn't it? That this destroys another believer. I mean, am I really going to destroy another believer by saying, oh, come on, have a drink with me? Is that really going to destroy another believer? Verse 20 sheds a lot of light on it. It says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says that God completes the good work that he started in us. I don't know about you. I don't want to get in the way of that. If someone says, because of my past and because of what I've gone through, I'm really trying to pursue purity. And then, you know, I'm trying to avoid the beach for a while because I need to stay away from the bikinis or the male equivalent of that. I don't know. Speedo. Okay. <laughs> do guys still wear that in the U.S.? If they do, man, it's ridiculous. Don't wear a Speedo, guys. Don't do it. Do not do it. I have some jokes that are inappropriate from up here, but talk to me later. Uh, uh, but yeah, don't, don't wear it. Uh, but if they're saying, hey, I need to build my fences a little higher, then don't invite them to Daytona Beach on spring break. <laughs> Go somewhere else for the sake of your brother or sister. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And that's the heart of the issue. It's love. The question is not, what can I get away with? The question is not, what can I enjoy while remaining, with God, remaining within God's written commands in the Bible? Personal pleasure is not our pursuit. Here's our pursuit. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. That is, the kingdom citizen's ultimate value is not personal pleasure. Our pledge of allegiance to the kingdom of God is not to my indulgence in areas where I have freedom in Christ. They are to righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's my feast. That's my drink. And we're to be guided by what brings these things about. And Paul says, if we live this way, it pleases Christ. Catch this next verse, verse 18. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. So that means if you say no to the thing you're allowed to say yes to for your brother or sister, Jesus is jazzed about that. He loves it. And that, and that humans, your brothers and sisters, will, they will approve of that as well. And even those who are far from Christ will see that and think, man, you did that. You're, you're restricting yourself so that you can help out the people that you, you go to church with. That's amazing. So the connection here between verses 17 and 18 is that if we indulge in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit instead of our freedoms, we please God and others. Because we please God in that we're putting 
the interest of others above ourselves, just like Christ did. And we please others because they feel loved by our sacrifice, just as we feel loved by Christ's sacrifice for us. Imagine telling your Christian brother or sister, hey, I know you said you were struggling with purity. So, and I know you said you're trying to avoid the beach. So we're going to go somewhere else. We're going to Colorado. We're going to the mountains instead of to Daytona Beach. You'll have their approval. They'll feel loved by that. And they'll feel like they're not alone in their battle for purity. Because let me tell you what, pornography and all the rest, it is a plague on our church in the United States. It is ruining future generations. And men and women, we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it with one another. We have to talk about it. Statistically, most of you in this room are struggling or have struggled with pornography. It's the church's little secret, and it is destroying us. And that's an area where we say no. We say no if a brother or sister can't watch certain programs on TV. We don't fast forward. We just say no to it. It doesn't matter. It's, it's filth compared to Jesus. We say no to owning a smartphone if it causes us to stumble. Throw the damn thing in the trash. It's not worth it. Who cares what it does to your work, to your social life? Throw the damn thing away. It's not worth it. Help your brothers and sisters persevere in the faith in areas of personal conviction. So we look towards our brothers and sisters, not ourselves. Verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. And if that were not clear enough, verse 21, it's better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Let me say that not causing a brother or sister to fall doesn't mean simply disagreeing on an issue, okay? Uh, let me give you an example. Now, Lauren and Sarah do not have these convictions. They do they go to Awaken. They're very involved, but I'm going to pick on them because I know them well enough. And you know, They don't have these convictions, but let's say they did. I don't think they do, at least. Let's say Lauren is completely okay with watching TV. She thinks it's fine. They're roommates, you know. But Sarah says, you know, the TV is a distraction for me, and I find that it, it, I just don't get in the word. I, I'm not pursuing Christ when I watch TV, and it's hard for me to kind of moderate myself. Now, if Sarah says, and hey, that's the reason why, Lauren, you shouldn't watch TV, because TV is, you know, I've decided not to do it, so you shouldn't watch TV. Well, should that be the agreement that Lauren and Sarah have? It depends. If Sarah says, hey, when, you, when I hear the TV in the house, it causes me to stumble because then I, get, I find myself kind of waffling on this conviction, wanting to go back and watch TV, then Lauren shouldn't watch it. Maybe even get rid of the TV. I don't want to get in the way of the good work that Jesus has started in someone and that he's finishing. I don't want to get in the way of sanctification. But if Sarah says, you know what? No, it doesn't bother me at all. You know, I mean, I, I've got my conviction. You have yours. Then by all means, go your, do your thing, you know, as you feel led. Follow your convictions. But really ask your brother and sister, hey, out of fear of God. No, I'm serious here. Does this cause you to stumble? I want to know because I care about you so much more, so much more than this dumb program or this bottle or whatever else. I care. I love you so much more. It'd be a pleasure for me to get rid of it for your sake. It'd be, a, it'd be an honor to love you in that way. Because most people are going to say, we're going to say, yeah, no problem. You know, I, you, we don't want to ruin anyone else's fun, right? But press them a little bit. 
We're to make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. But if Sarah becomes judgmental of Lauren because Lauren chooses to watch TV, even though Sarah is not stumbling because of it, then Sarah is in sin, according to Paul's words here in Romans 14, because she's condemning Lauren. Does that make sense? Uh, worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up here. Um, but when you're convicted on a non-essential issue, here's what's going to get you. Don't preach it loudly. Do you know that's directly addressed by Paul here? Don't preach it loudly. Don't make it an issue. Please don't make it an issue. We're commanded not to. I like the way the NLT clarifies this command in verse 22. You may believe there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, but keep it between yourself and God. (laughs) Does that get any more clear? Keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they've decided is right. Do you know how many people who have been hurt by overzealous communication from a believer who's talking about non-essential matters? Too many to count, for sure. I have counseled too many to count. Believers who have felt condemned because spiritual leaders have made a major issue out of a certain approach to ministry. This is the only way to do it. You need to show up at the church five nights a week. You're not committed. You don't love Jesus unless you do it. Uh, People who say you should only watch TV. These are real things that I've counseled on. You should only watch TV if it's news, Christian media, or sports, anything else is wrong. It's wrong to wear a bathing suit. You should wear pants when you swim. Uh, uh, You should drink or you shouldn't drink. The list goes on and on and on and on. We're to be about righteousness, peace, and the work of the Holy Spirit, and how dare any of us take sin lightly. Uh, So some questions for us to consider in closing here. Is there an open-handed issue where you're indulging when you should be abstaining? Or vice versa, where you should be indulging and right now you're abstaining. Is there an open-handed issue that you need to explore? The answer for all of us is yes. (laughs) Yes. I believe this is something we're we're constantly allowing Christ to work through us. Um, Is there any way you're causing another believer to stumble? If so, be afraid. It's a big deal. If you have a different conviction than a brother and sister, we need to be asking them, hey, are you sure that I'm, again, it would be a pleasure for me to cut this out. Uh, Around them, of course. Um, Because we don't want to make a choice based on our freedom that then enslaves another believer, do we? We don't want that. Are you judgmental towards other believers because of an area of personal conviction that we need to repent from? Do you hang out, and this is a big one, only with believers who have the same convictions on open-handed issues as you? Do you have any Christian friends who lean more to the left if you're on the right or to the right when you're on the left? Some of you don't because you think, man, I don't don't even see how a Christian could believe that. How could a a Christian have voted for Trump? Or how could a, a Christian have voted for Hillary Clinton or whatever the case may be? I guarantee you, if that's the way you feel, there's one thing I know you haven't done. Probably down to the last person in here. You have not taken more than 30 seconds to understand how believers on the other side feel and truly tried to understand why they believe what they believe in that area. It's okay to disagree. It's okay to disagree strongly. It's okay to even challenge one another. But we withhold a rebuke for sin. Do you have friends who, do you have believers in your life who have different convictions than you 
on open-handed issues? Or do we isolate and keep ourselves only around those who think just like us? It's be really hard for us to win people as individuals and as a church, those who don't know Christ, with that approach to unity in the church. And it's going to limit our ability to please God even. Are you easily offended when believers challenge you on open-handed issues? I sometimes am. I, 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 true confessions. I sometimes get really ticked off when believers challenge me on an open-handed issue and can be very, very defensive because I, I tend to hold my convictions pretty tightly, uh, maybe to a fault. And so that's something that I need to grow in. Maybe it's an area where you need to grow as well. And then finally, is there a step towards unity you need to take towards another believer where you realize you have marginalized another believer because of differences in open, on your convictions and open-handed issues? So, Lord, we thank you for this difficult but insanely practical teaching. I pray that you would help us to be a church that leads, um, Lord, one another closer to you, Lord, through our love for unity. Lord, that you would teach us how to communicate clearly uh, our convictions, that you'd help us develop strong convictions on these open-handed issues But, Lord, I pray that you'd also teach us how to trust you as the ultimate judge. I pray that you would use the apologetic of our unity to win a lost world to yourself. Lord, and I pray that you would help us to grow in the diversity of our Christian friends that we do life with. And, Lord, I pray for uh, this offering, your offering, that will be taken now. I pray that you would use these resources for the advancement of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.